Today's scripture reading is Matthew chapter 13, verse 53 to chapter 14, verse 21. Again, that's Matthew chapter 13, verse 53 to chapter 14, verse 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you and flip to page 769. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother." And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be here and share the word of God with you. And uh, before we begin, let's start with a prayer. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live it by all our hearts. 
to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Leo Tolstoy said this, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. Everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. A collision with the truth will either force you to change or force you to reject the truth and just live with the consequences. <clears throat> Give you a kind of silly example. Uh, I had lived in an apartment all my life. Uh, so has my wife, by the way. When we most recently moved into a house, there's something called like central AC and heating. This is very unfamiliar to people who lived in apartments all their lives. It's called the HVAC system. And um, one day I got the utility bill and it came out to $380. And we realized we can't keep the heat on all the time. <laughs> but it's one of those things you're like, what this guy? But if you've never like, lived in a house, you think, you know, it's a little cold, let's turn on the heat. Or it's a little warm, let's turn on the AC. Um, I had read that what's normal in the winter is to set your heat to 68 degrees. We were setting it at, I think, 76 or something to that effect. It, it, was, it was very high. I was like, this thing is wrong. It's 76, but I, we still feel cold. And then in the, in the summer, the normal uh, temperature setting is 78 degrees, 78. Um, I mean, we've learned now to try to save some money. And, um, you know, I looked up the U.S. Energy, uh, Department of Energy and their recommendations. So we're like, okay, okay. So 68 is normal in the winter, 78 is normal in the summer. So we're kind of moving up to that. In the summer, we're, we're now like 76 or 77. <laughs> Maybe next year, 78, I don't know. In the winter, we'll, we'll see in the winter. But when you're hit with this kind of, let's say, even if it's a silly example like this, it's a very silly example, but I was hit with the truth that if I lived the way I wanted to live, ignoring the facts and our energy usage, my bill per month would go up to $400. It's something I can't afford. When you hit with the truth and you collide with it, it will either force you to change or it will force you to reject that truth and live with the consequences. We could have easily said, forget that. We're just going to pay $400 a month for our heating and AC bills and live like that. And so what is the truth that we're seeing people colliding with when they see Jesus? That's an important question. That's really important for us to know. What is the truth that we are seeing people getting hit with, collided with in the person of Jesus Christ? This is what John MacArthur writes. He says, truth, the truth that we're talking about, truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Even more to the point, Truth is the self-expression of God. That is the biblical meaning of truth because the definition of truth flows from God. Truth is theological. Truth is also ontological, meaning the way we see things and feel things and experience things, which is a fancy way of saying the way things really are. Reality is what it is because God declared it 
and made it so. Therefore, God is the author, source, determiner, governor, arbiter, ultimate standard, and final judge of all truth. Truth, as we have seen, is completely and fully expressed in Jesus Christ. And when it hits you, you can either accept it, which demands change and repentance, or reject it. And we'll see that it's not just a passive or mild rejection. As time goes on, the rejection has to and will get more and more forceful. And what was read today, and when Jesus had finished these parables, this is the end of the parable discourse, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, which is Nazareth, where he grew up, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? He goes back to Nazareth, his hometown, after the parable discourse where he grew up and goes to the synagogue. The synagogue was the town center and the center for the community where they could gather. This is where you had a cultural exchange. But more importantly, as we see in the Bible, it was in the synagogue that a teacher would open up a scroll of the scriptures, read it, sit down, and teach from it while everyone else stood. The standing that everyone else did, of course, signifies the posture to the teaching. We have a little bit of that probably here when in class, when you run into class, where do you sit, you know, the first time? If it's not in alphabetical order, you may have sat in the front, perhaps if you were hard of hearing or hard of seeing, but many students would want to be as close as they could to the teacher so they could be as close to the teachings as possible. These are people we call nerds, but these are people that understood that these teachings are precious. I want to get close to it. That's the posture that we have when we see teaching and truth. And this is what the Jews regularly did on the Sabbath. And on one Sabbath in Nazareth, Jesus shows up and he starts teaching. And this teaching would lead to utter amazement, even bewilderment to his listeners. And it says there are two sources that we've read for this kind of astonishment that was wisdom and mighty works. Wisdom and mighty works that Jesus did would lead to their astonishment. This would have led to the listeners to see that both of these things are evidences for God's authority or Jesus' authority. And even if you didn't believe it, at least somehow connected. This kind of teaching was unheard of before. It was unseen before. And now we see it with our eyes and hear it with our ears. And in the very least, they should have connected it to God's authority somehow. But this astonishment, instead of leading to worship, would lead to resentment. He's just one of us. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. I know you. 
You were that kid that had the bad case of pimples during puberty, and we used to call you crater face, and now you want us to call you rabbi? You know, I consider myself relatively a young man, but when I see people from the church I grew up with, uh, it gets people very uncomfortable when I stand next to them because they realize I'm a pastor and they saw me run around as a little kid causing all kinds of trouble and even drama in the church and now I'm this pastor. So just staying next to them makes certain people very uncomfortable. Like, mm, good to see you. Okay, bye. <laughs> they would just go. But I can see that. Jesus says this, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Jesus could not and did not fit into any of their categories, so they have to reject him. And this isn't anything new. This is a common theme throughout the Old Testament with prophets, even with kings, where Saul saw David as a young man, and this guy, David, would play music for him to entertain him, and now he's king? This kid, rage, and throws a, a spear at him. But the category of prophet, what we have to understand, the category of prophet isn't given by man to man. It's given by God. So the rejection of a prophet is really rejection of whom then? And in verse 58 it says, And he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. You know, some people have used this verse to claim that because they didn't have belief, Jesus could not, meaning he did not have the ability anymore to do miracles. This is wrong. Jesus isn't Tinkerbell, where if you don't believe, Jesus wouldn't have the ability to do miracles. It's like, you don't believe, oh, and then he starts like withering away. As if to say, Jesus' miracles were dependent on your faith. Our lack of faith doesn't strip God or Jesus of power. If it did, then it would suggest that God's power is reliant on our faith, a.k.a. us giving God permission. God's sovereignty isn't only questioned with this kind of theology, but it is directly challenged by thinking God cannot do things that I will not allow him to do. That thinking is wrong. All throughout the Bible, we see God doing things without anyone's permission. So to take a reading like that and interpret it in this manner would only leave one to the conclusion that God is under your control, a.k.a. you are God. There are teachings like this in the churches today claiming to be apostolic and orthodox in nature. It is not. This is rank heresy. The did not do is in relation to Jesus' mission. Just as Jesus could not and did not turn stones into bread without violating his mission in chapter 4, he could not do miracles indiscriminately without turning his mission into a sideshow. Jesus isn't someone that needed to take the basketball and continue to throw it up from the half-court uh, half line to show off during practice. That's not who Jesus is. He's not an entertainer. 
In fact, if Jesus was the perfect basketball player, he would have just sat there. And game time come, he would just throw it from wherever on the court and always sink the three. And eventually, five defenders would come on Jesus, and then he would just dribble through and then just shoot it up wherever he was and sink the three again, and it would be boring. It's like this is, this is not a fair game. This wasn't an entertainment factory that Jesus was trying to produce. So the lack of faith in Greek is called apista, used only in this particular part in Matthew, this exact word apista, of the people is showing, no doubt, is showing a source of profound grief and frustration for Jesus Christ, unbelieving, like it says in Matthew 17, rather than something that stripped him of power. Jesus didn't do miracles, and it was a source of grief and frustration because all anybody wanted to see was this entertainer. Shoot that three from the half point, like the half court line. We know you can do it. But the game's not on. What's the point? So that we can be entertained. That's not who Jesus is. And so he did not do many miracles there. In the very next verse, which we see is a chapter break, but it says, at that time, which is connected to this part, Herod the Tetrarch heard about Jesus' fame, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Herod the Tetrarch is Herod Antipas, and we would hear of Jesus. He would, he would hear of Jesus and then show off to his servants, which is uh, directly translated his boys, so it's like he's showing off to his boys that he had John the Baptist. He heard of Jesus Christ and he's like, look, I got John the Baptist. What he says here shows a little bit of what kind of theology Herod Antipas had. John the Baptist, he was raised from the dead. And then you're like, who raised him? He was reincarnated? But because of it, he has all these miraculous powers. What powers, right? He was superstitious but he didn't have a grounding on scriptural truth. It was probably a hodgepodge of beliefs at the time. This is very rampant in our day and age too. There is a famous basketball coach who has more NBA championship rings than fingers, who describes himself as a Zen Christian there is no such thing. That makes no sense. But what he does is he claims to take the best of both worlds and combine them, and that's what he attributes to his success. And because he has 11 rings, who can refute that, right? In the same way, there seems to be a mingling of religious thought in Herod Antipas' beliefs, and he's king. So who can refute that, right? Well, it seems that John the Baptist did and right to his face. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, that means he kept on saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So who is Herod Antipas? He did this because of Herodias. 
Who was Herodias? Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, we were introduced to in Matthew chapter 2 when he tried to kill all the babies, remember, in Bethlehem. Uh, so that's Herod the Great. And Herodias is his granddaughter. His son was Aristobulus, and Aristobulus's daughter was Herodias. But he had another son. So Herod had another son, and if you can imagine this family tree, this is going to get perhaps a little convoluted, but you can see Herod the Great, Aristobulus, and then we see his daughter was Herodias. But Herod the Great had another son, and his, uh, his name was Herod Philip, so which would make Herodias her uncle, right? So she married her uncle, uh, Herod Philip. And then she left Herod Philip for another uncle, another son of Herod the Great, which was Herod Antipas. It says they fell in love. Uh, historians write that Herod Antipas was actually married already to Nabataean princess. It's an Arabian princess. Um, she was the daughter of King Aretas, but he and Herodias fell in love. When he meaning Herod Antipas, fell in love with Herodias. She left Herod Philip, went to Herod Antipas, and the wife of Herod Antipas, his current wife at the time, left and fled for her life because she knew what was coming. And then the king, King Aretas, which was his current, uh, Herod Antipas' current wife, came and waged war and defeated Herod Antipas, and then the Romans got involved. The Romans got involved, which which uh, stopped that kind of uh, you know, affair. But this is what was happening. This is drama. This is nuts. Like, this is better than any kind of drama you would see in TV now. This is insane. There's incest. There's like, um, what do you call it, backstabbing. There's plots to murder. There's war. There's battle. And this is real stuff that's happening. But there's this one man in the middle of all this craziness, all this drama, all this nuttiness, calling out sin for what it is. This man was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist would say, that's wrong. That's sin. And Herod and Herodias were furious. How dare this peasant call out what we, the nobility, can do, we can do whatever we want. And he would have the audacity, the gall, to point out their sin over and over again. You know, this message to repent and to be baptized is a message that is repeated over and over again. You know when it gets annoying? You know when it gets infuriating? You know when you start getting enraged? When you don't repent. When you don't repent and you keep on hearing the message, you're like, this guy is so annoying. All he does is talk about repent. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about Jesus and John the Baptist. And it becomes a sore spot because you are not repentant and all you hear is repent. However, however, here's the other side. If you have repented and you did turn to Jesus and you are following as his disciple, the message repent is a point of joy. I remember and I remember my turn, and it is a point of joy for us. But if you have not repented, this is a sore spot. 
This is sin. You can't have this kind of relationship. You can't live that way. The Bible is strictly talking against, it's contrary to Old Testament law, it's contrary to God's will, and this is not how we ought to live. And so in verse 6, when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, her name was Salome, danced before the company and it pleased Herod. You know, birthday celebrations were not a Jewish custom. This was a Gentile custom. And dancing in these festivities weren't done by princesses, but they were done by dancers who were not of noble or royal blood. The dances were usually sensual in nature, so women of high status would not have necessarily danced in front of a drunken crowd as it would have demeaned them. However, it says here that Herodias' daughter, Salome, danced. So historians have estimated that Salome's daughter's, I mean, Salome's age would have been around 12 to 14. So it was either a coming of age acknowledgement or another some kind of weird incestuous thing. Because Salome does end up marrying Philip the Tetrarch, who was Herod Antipas's brother. So that incestual circle continues and goes on. She marries her uncle again, just like her mother. So which one was it? It could have been both. It could have been, it could have been both. It could have been one or the other. I'm not sure. We don't know. Even with the historical documents I've read, we, we're not too sure. It's possible. I mean, I've been to a place in Hawaii called Makapala, and we were guests there. And in Makapala, there were, it's very, very like Hawaii village. Everything is stripped down. People, are, people look like you would see in the movies. And we went to do some work, so we were guests. We saw that the shingles on all their roofs were kind of coming, falling apart. So a bunch of us, we got together and we said, you know what, why don't we serve this uh, community and re-shingle all the roofs? And that was, that was quite the venture because it was like 100 degrees and we were standing on roofs re-shingling these things, first tearing off the old shingles and putting on new ones. And they appreciated it so much, they showed us in gratitude what they could to us as guests. So they set up a big banquet or a feast, and the highlight was this 13-year-old girl doing the hula in front of us. And to us as guests, we're like, mm, this is weird, but okay, we'll just accept it. But you would see the parents just beaming with pride, and the parents were, the, son, the, the father was the son of the chief. So this was her coming of age acknowledgement by performing this hula to the guests. So I could kind of see it in this way. Uh, it could be. But Herodias, who hated John the Baptist, would call, because John the Baptist would call her out on the truth and the deplority of the convoluted, incestuous union tells her daughter now that Herod loved what he saw, tells her daughter, this is what you are to say. Get me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And if you know your history, this is, this is, um, you know, this is just very reminiscent of what happened to Cicero. But you take note that Herod is sorry, which meant that he didn't want to do this. He was grieved to do this. And this wasn't because he wanted... He didn't want John the Baptist dead, but because he feared the people. But it was in front of his guests, and he promised, 
profusely. It says odes. So he kept on saying, I'll do whatever you want, Salome. I'll do whatever you want. So it was a lose-lose situation for him. So he does it. Beheads John the Baptist. Because it was an immediate request. I want John the Baptist's head on this platter now. He had to do it right then and there. So that's what he does. He beheads John the Baptist, puts it on the platter that she says, and gives it to him at that celebration. And so on his birthday, he has to do this disgusting deed. And on his birthday, he was grieved. It says he was grieved, right? He was sorry. So John's disciples take the body, bury it, and go to Jesus. I would imagine that if Jesus, he wasn't his, only his direct cousin, but a family member, but also the one that John prophesied about, it would have been a natural course of action for John's disciples to take, bury the body, and then tell Jesus about it. And that's what leads us to the feeding of the 5,000. You know, there are so many commentators on this particular event. It goes to show how popular this event was. It's the only event outside of Christ's death and resurrection. It's the only event to appear in all four gospel accounts. So in the very least, it would be reasonable to think that it was a most precious event to all four gospel writers. I would imagine you would know at least some of the details if you've been going to church of this miraculous event. But let me go over some of the basics that I think you would have known or you heard of already. But let me go over these basics, but also I want to put the focus on the juxtaposition of this event to the previous accounts. Now, I've talked about the previous two accounts of his rejection at Nazareth and the beheading of John the Baptist. This is where Jesus' state is now. He gets rejected in his hometown. And then you see his very dear cousin, family member, the greatest prophet. This is what Jesus said. This is the greatest prophet to have ever been born of a woman gets beheaded. He hears about this, and this is what happens. And then all of a sudden, he's talking about the feeding of the 5,000. He's like, is this connected somehow? And here's what you may have heard. Jesus would take five loaves and two fish, which was, which was a staple of the Galilean province, pray a blessing, and shazam, thousands of people are fed, 5,000 men, meaning that even with women and children, we're looking at around 14,000 total people. That's what you may have heard, and that's what it says. There are those, however, that have said, and because of the popularity of the story, and there are those that would now just promulgate and promote these other kinds of theories out there in this in modern age. That Jesus, giving, to, giving thanks to God for this meager amount of food, what it really did was it made other people feel guilty that he only got five loaves and two fish. So when they were following Jesus, and you see Jesus giving thanks for five loaves and two fish, they feel guilty, and they started to share the food that they had brought out. And viola, there's enough, enough for everyone. So socialism. This kind of reading completely ignores and does not take into account what the definition of miracle is in the gospel accounts. A miracle is something only God could supernaturally do and something that is impossible for humans to do. That's what a miracle is. And if Jesus was only guilt-tripping people into sharing their food, that would not have counted as a miracle to the authors of the Gospels. Secondly, 
The disciples counted 12 baskets. If people are giving up their food, why are they taking their food from them? Jesus the dictator? This is not an image or theme I see anywhere in the Bible. And thirdly, Matthew is very specific on how they got the food, how they got the distribution. Jesus would distribute the food to the disciples, and the disciples would then in turn distribute them to the people. There was an ordering and specificity to the seating and distribution of the food. If people just took out whatever food they had and started sharing, this account would be, in the very least, a very distorted and dishonest record of the event. And I can't help but to wonder if you are a so-called scholar and think this way about Jesus' miracles, that they were mainly psychological or some kind of psychosomatic manipulation, can I also call you a Zen Christian? You can't simply want to something to mean something and reject the underlying facts purported by the accounts and say you still hold to the accounts. You don't hold to the gospel accounts, you are not a Christian, to which I think many of the liberal, my liberal uh, theologian colleagues would they wouldn't argue against that. Like, that's not, means you're not a Christian. They wouldn't argue against that. And so going back to the recorded event of the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, we see it's placed right after Jesus' rejection and John's rejection. And after the death of John the Baptist, the greatest Old Testament prophet to have ever lived, Jesus goes to a desolate place by himself. This, to me, these three stories connected to me is a very sad story. I was reading this again and again, and it just, it just makes me sad. This is a very, very trying, it, I can only imagine how trying and hard and difficult it was for our Lord Jesus. And it says, the Bible specifically says that when Jesus heard this, when he heard that John the Baptist had been beheaded and killed in this just insane, stupid, evil manner, like, imagine that. And there are, there are reports out there that what Herodias did was exactly what Flavius did to Cicero. Meaning when Flavius was, I mean, I don't want to get into it, but she was the wife of Mark Antony, and Mark Antony wanted to be, like, emperor and Caesar, and Cicero was the one that was fighting for the Republic. Cicero, by the way, is a huge, um, just... Uh, inspiration to people like Thomas Jefferson, John Adams idolized him. And so a lot of our constitution is written with the inspiration of Cicero. And he, he said, no dictatorship, we need a republic, right? And so Mark Antony was, was the one that wanted to seize power and become Caesar. Finally, when they caught up to Cicero and killed him, beheaded him, took off his head and hands, it was Flavius, Mark Antony's uh, wife, that would take um, Cicero's head put it between her knees, and then take out a hairpin, take out his tongue, and stab it with her pin. Like, this is recorded history. There's, uh, it's, it's also, um, is, is a legend that this is exactly what Herodias did. This is the same matter in which Herodias treated John the Baptist's head when she got it. And if Jesus heard all these details, you know, how upset, how sad, how enraged, how all, all this flurry of emotions would have come to you. Would it not? If you're a human and someone you deeply love and cherish, someone who you understood to be the most amazing Old Testament prophet of all time, who was your blood cousin as well, this would happen to him? Then you understand. He withdrew to a desolate place by himself. 
But when the crowds heard this, when the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. He was in the Galilean territory. He was in that area. They heard it. They followed him there. And here's the part that really amazes me. In all the craziness that we saw in the last two events preceding this one, how discombobulated, saddened, and even raged would you be? You know, for me, when I don't get things my way, I become like a petulant child like this over the littlest things. $380 on a, on a heating bell and rage, right? But this is, this is not that. This is, this is even more so. I, get, I become like a petulant child when I don't get things my way. And we see here, Jesus, could you, could you just imagine what he might be going through, even though we'll never understand fully. But could you imagine, even for a bit, because even the gospel accounts don't even try because of the deepness of Jesus' character. He's God. And so it just says, when he heard this, he withdrew from there to a boat, to a desol- in a boat, to a desolate place by himself. Who would want to be, who wouldn't want to be left alone, especially to commune with the Father, after all these events had transpired. And yet, and yet, when the crowds that follow Jesus, Jesus sees the crowds, what does he feel? What did he feel? And in verse 14 it says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and healed the sick. What predicated his following actions were from compassion. This is a crazy world we live in. I would imagine it's crazier if you can see and understand what Jesus did, since you could truly see it for what it is. Yet in the midst of all these things, what you would have been feeling, when he sees the people, he has compassion. And that is the primary characteristic that is being described here. Did they deserve it? Did they deserve this compassion? After the third discourse and the response to it, I would think not. However, regardless of whether anyone deserved it or not, he had compassion on them. And that compassion would lead to the healing of the sick and the feeding of the 5,000. That compassion is even more fully on display on the cross when he would exclaim, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the feeding of the 5,000 is notable also because of the adjective Matthew uses to describe their state after they had ate. When Jesus has compassion on the people, he feeds them. And in verse 20 it says, And they all ate. And were satisfied. That's a deep verse. There was contentment. The difference now should be glaringly obvious. In Jesus' hometown, in their rejection of him, there is offense. They took offense at him. In Herod's case, there was grief, both signs of deep contentment. And I find it ironic that Herod would have had the best foods and entertainment available to him. You want to Instagram post something? This is the place to be. This is the party to go to. This is what's going to get you those likes. And he would be overwhelmed with grief. Grief would be the primary emotion he'd experience that day. Whereas with Jesus, 
even something like a simple meal, would bring satisfaction. You know, I like to cook for people when I can. I'm not that good. I can make only a few dishes. But I get to put in a little bit of thought and prep into any meal I serve. And sometimes it's complex, sometimes it's simple, sometimes very simple. But I found that whether it's complex or simple, extravagant or humble, it's the people that I share it with that matters most. You know, this is the reason, this is one of the reasons, just one of the reasons why we take the sacrament of communion so seriously. Not only because the Bible commands us to do so, but because in our obedience we start seeing what really matters. Our communion revolves around the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this crazy world, Jesus subjects himself to it, coming down and taking the form of a servant, and he serves us. This is what leads me to wonder and amazement when I read these three passages. God's perfect wisdom and power is manifest in his son, and he comes down as a servant. And for whatever reason, the Bible calls it love, but it's not the kind of love I'm used to, because love in this world always has strings attached. And those strings seem so frail. And there's no doubt that what Jesus did would have left any of us to exclaim, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? But instead of resentment, instead of grief, we would pray that we would have our eyes open to see and our ears open to hear the truth. Jesus had signs and he had wisdom and he served people with it. But that's not the end of it. Because if it was the end of it, they would still be hungry later. If that was the end of it, we would still be stuck in our sinful state. The grace that the crowd of 5,000 men got to experience was a taste of what it would be like with Jesus and to finally find contentment. We, you know, we naturally think contentment is getting what we want. There's a story of an eagle, and this eagle spotted this weasel from far away, and it would just circle around the weasel, um, waiting for the most opportune time. And when the eagle saw an opening, it would swoop down, grab it with its claws, and as the eagle tried to ascend back, the weasel just went to town on this eagle's chest, start tearing it open with its claws and its mouth, and then you would see the eagle come crashing down to die. And the weasel would just get up and walk away, just going about his business like nothing happened. People think they know what they want. People think they know what contentment is. They think that they know what life should be, like, ah, this is the good stuff. Click. But when you really look at them, I mean really look at them outside of their social media postings, really look at them. Really look at yourself. Really look at yourself. Contentment is elusive to those that seek it. But we see here the Bible showing us that contentment was found by the people who sought Jesus. 
Jesus' servanthood would lead to more than just our feeding. It points to something deeper in our souls, a hunger that cannot be satisfied only by food, an understanding that when Jesus would tell the devil, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, that Jesus, he's that word. He is how we can live and be satisfied. In Nazareth, when people were amazed at his wisdom and miraculous power but rejected him, they couldn't see that the signs and wisdoms were pointing to him. Paul gets this when he writes to the Corinthians, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins. You want wisdom? Study that. You want power? Study that. The wisdom and power of God is made manifest in Jesus and in only him. In our sin, Jesus came to save us. In our wretched state, he came to serve us. And this is the selfless love that 1 Corinthians 13.5 is talking about. Jesus had much to say about his selflessness, about selflessness in general during his earthly ministry. In the Sermon on the Mount, he goes beyond of what other people thought was selflessness, like helping a friend, ministering to, to a spouse, caring for someone sick like your child who becomes sick, Jesus extends that selflessness beyond normal expectations. And he goes, we are to love our enemies, even pray for our persecutors. Jesus taught that it's easy to love a friend or a spouse. Even unbelievers do that. But the Christian is expected to love the unlovable because this is how we become more like him. It's God who gives blessings to everyone. It's a difficult thing to lay aside hurt feelings and wounded hearts. But it's a part of selflessness. It's a part of what Jesus is telling us to do. It's a part of what Jesus shows us here. And in so many areas, Jesus is the ultimate example of selflessness. In coming to this world, he made himself nothing and took upon himself the very nature of a servant. I, who tend to be a petulant child, when I don't get my way, when I see Jesus is a prophet who came without honor so that I could know contentment and full satisfaction. And could we even imagine how magnificent Christ was in glory before he made himself nothing? The glory he left behind? I don't think so. Even the Apostle John couldn't explain heaven, and he had to use it in earthly terms. He would say in Revelations 21, 12 gates were 12 pearls. Like, let's stop there. In Revelations 21, he's trying to explain heaven. He can't do it because what he sees is so glorious, so magnificent. We're talking about the outside of the city. You don't use expensive stuff on the outside. You use sturdy stuff, stuff that will withstand like maybe an invasion. Stuff, you don't use the best stuff there. But he would say the 12 gates were 12 pearls. That means each gate was one gigantic pearl. Like he, he did not explain it. And he goes on, and the roads were made out of gold. You don't use the best stuff for the roads. 
use the cheapest stuff, but he couldn't even explain it. He goes, the roads are made out of gold. The streets are made out of gold. And he goes, like transparent glass. Even that gold was more beautiful than gold. How do you explain that? And John would go, even, even the low stuff, the stuff that gets replaced, the stuff that people don't have to interact with every day, that stuff we can't even fathom. Imagine the glory that Jesus had and that he left for us to become a servant for us. This is the glory that we're invited to in Christ The contentment the 5,000 saw was just a taste, albeit a glorious one, but it was just a taste. This is the glory that Christ is inviting his disciples to. This is the glory that was paid for, that we can now receive. You know, when he took form of a servant, he didn't just do this. We see it gets worse and worse and more extreme. That rejection goes so extreme that the sins are now given unto him and he is crucified because of our sins. But the good news is this. Jesus was crucified because of our sins, but if you place your faith in him, he is the one that now gives you new life. He is the one that offers you true contentment, and it's in him. Now, as followers of Christ, like it says in Philippians, we, if you know Jesus Christ, we are to have the same mindset. Jesus came not for his own benefit, but our benefit. He came to minister and die for us. It says in Mark 10, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus would tell his disciples, you give them something to eat. Oh, the people are hungry. You give them something to eat. And to those that have had a taste, it's your job now to tell others where the feast is. Let's pray.